guys i want to welcome you to the uh, honest conversations podcast we're your host i'm will i'm trevor and uh, we are glad that you guys are tuning in uh, for what i think will be a pretty helpful discussion um, we're gonna be talking about race in the local church obviously with all the things going on in the culture uh, even some of the discussions that are happening within local congregations uh, even on the den- denominational level um, i'm not sure that the conversation of race is ever going to go away mm-hmm. um, and that's not a bad thing um, I might be jumping in a little bit too fast, too soon, too quick, but we'll get there. Um, Before we dive in, we actually have a special guest that um, I won't steal his thunder. I'll give him a a chance to to jump in, tell us a little bit about who he is. Uh, Joe Ash, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me, Will, Trevor. My name is Joe Ash Thomas. Um, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia with my wife, Valentina. Um, I work for International Justice Mission, uh, leader advocacy and mobilization efforts in the U.S. Southeast region. Uh, that being said, all my views here today aren't going to be personal. I'm going to be sharing from personal experience and conversations I've had with brothers and pastors across the Bible Belt. Uh, but uh, also, uh, I'm also a seminary student by night. Um, I'm a THM student getting my Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, have a bachelor's in political science from Georgia State, a master's in political management. Uh, Lord had me working in the political world before doing what I do now in the ministry world. So kind of have perspectives from there as well. Um, And uh, yeah, I think uh, that just about covers everything. Uh, A big part of my job really is working with uh, the local church on issues of biblical justice, um, specifically to trafficking and, uh, you know, the poor and oppressed overseas, but also often have conversations with pastors on justice issues affecting us here at home and um, how they're discipling their people to think about these justice issues. So excited to get into that. Yeah, I love it. I'm hearing, he didn't say this, but I hear in my brain, Joe Ash might be the smartest guy in the room, <laughs> in all the in all the rooms. It's definitely um, not me. <laughs> agreed, me too. It's not me. Um, so, uh, so it makes it a little bit of a unique conversation because um, Trevor and I were both pastors, uh, both associate pastors, yeah. um, doing similar type work in very different contexts. Um, I'm in uh, up here in Waynesboro, Virginia, which is the the easiest way to do to know where that is is find Harrisonburg and Charlottesville, and then find the point between them. We're in the middle of nowhere, um, sort of pressed against the mountains. But um, in the context that I'm in, it's a very, uh, people ask me what it's like. I say we're in a a red area um, and red is a spectrum of color here. It's uh, Republican for sure, Mm -hmm. um, but it can also go into the Confederate side of red. um, And that makes for a, a unique, sometimes challenging and difficult conversation uh, to have with folks about issues of justice and race and politics. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to drawing on some of the wisdom that, that you have, Joe Ash, in the conversation, um, because there are some things I have, I'm trying to figure out as far as the practical side of, of discipleship and ministry, even in preaching, how do we begin to engage uh, those conversations? And then Trevor's in Aiken, right? Yeah. Uh, which is 
sort of situated along the Georgia, Georgia border? border? Yep, Georgia. Right. I mean, 20 minutes from Georgia. Okay. So, yeah. Which yeah. I'm sure is a, you know, a little bit deeper South, obviously that's a yeah. little bit different context. Not all South is the same South. <laughs> no, yeah, it's different. Now, I'm, I'm, it's interesting thinking, cause you know, I lived in Virginia for a while too, uh, seeing, I mean, obviously similarities, but also uh, differences in certain ways. But we, I mean, we, we're, in, we're similar in the sense of that red mm-hmm. uh, being in there. I mean, you, you've got those same leanings uh, down here in those, those same sort of conversations that need to be had. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. All right. So, so let's, let's dive into it. Uh, Trevor's going to kind of sort of interview us, um, but obviously he'll also jump in on the discussion as well. Uh, he has yeah. some, some doozy of a couple of questions here <laughs> for us to think through and uh, we'll just jump in. And if we, if we stay in a particular conversation, that that's helpful too. Um, but Trevor, man, you take it away. Yeah. Ask the first question, and then I will voluntarily concede to Joash to answer first as our, <laughs> our, our as our guest. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm I'm excited to uh, to work th- through these and, and hear y'all's opinion. And for those of you listening, a little bit of context here about why I think doing this episode this way is important. Uh, so Will and Joash are both brown men, uh, and so they have they have perspectives on this conversation uh, that I personally don't have. And so it's helpful to have these conversations like this and to ask this stuff. And I hope for you guys listening that you can, you can take away something helpful from, and I'm sure that I'm going to, uh, but, but starting off something that I've noticed is that many people, they hear the word racism and this picture uh, comes into their mind, sort of this Hollywood historical drama picture uh, that involves slavery, uh, separate bathrooms, separate water fountains, segregation in general, uh, a, a time when the KKK sort of had this known public presence. Uh, that's often what, what people think of when they hear the word racism. And so because that picture comes to mind, this picture that is really is in the past, their conclusion is that, well, this is no longer a problem. Why are we still talking about this? Uh, so, so my question for you guys is how can God's people understand what racism is in a way that helps them see the ways that it's still present? Man, that's such a great question, Trevor. And uh, I'm gonna try to answer that uh, as well shared, but uh, you know, I think uh, what we're doing right here um, is really what I would love to see happen all across the church uh, in North America, across kitchen tables, church boardrooms, uh, small groups, Bible studies, um, you know, preaching from the pulpit. Like, these are exactly the kind of conversations that need to be had uh, because conversations like this focus a lot on listening, right? Yeah. And I do absolutely think that uh, one of the most neglected ways of loving our neighbor in the church these days is the art of listening. Uh, we've all gotten so good, including myself, at sharing our opinions that uh, we don't pause to listen and put ourselves in the shoes of our brothers and sisters who have had other life experiences. Um, so, you know, I appreciate your humility uh, and candor, Trevor, and putting yourself out there, um, you know, and asking these uncomfortable questions and just taking a posture of listening. And I'm trying to exercise that too with my uh, sisters in Christ uh, who don't have uh, the kind of male privileges that I do in a lot of spaces as well. So that's a good lens to apply across the church just to begin with. Uh, one other thing I'll share is some someone 
who's been uh, really helpful in kind of shaping my public theology on racism in the United States from a Christian perspective is this author, Jamar Tisby. Uh, he's just one of the many great voices out there in the uh, Christian circles right now. Uh, he's from the Christian reform circles as well. But, you know, he talks a lot about how, just like sin, the sin of racism doesn't really go away. It just evolves over mm. a period of time, right? Yeah. So just like any other sin. So sure, you know, a few centuries ago, a few decades ago, the sin of racism looked very different. Right. Uh, but the sin of racism uh, in our hearts is still very much there. And we'd be fooling ourselves to, de uh, to deny things like total depravity uh, and to say there's no sin in our heart uh, that's, you know, shown across cultures. So absolutely, I think uh, step one has to be just taking a pause and uh, listening and asking conversations of our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ, our Asian American brother and sister in Christ, and just trying to get a better sense of what it's like for them. Uh, and you know, I think a lot of times what we'll realize is that a lot of our a lot of our neighbors don't really have political agendas. You know, they're not saying this to get Biden uh, another four more years or anything like that. They're sharing this from personal experiences, from uh, personal trauma, from folks in their community what they're hearing that kind of thing so you know it's just helpful for us to take a posture of listening um i don't know what do, what do you think will oh that's good um in, in my brain i I'm, i in the question i hear or I, I understand it as the the sort of difference between macro and micro a little bit um the macro being the societal level uh, maybe we would use the word systemic um, and historically you know in in the u.s there's been a lot of macro level racism that's been uh, not just observed and uh, but experienced, right? We, we talk about things like slavery. Uh, we talk about things like post reconstruction, uh, sort of the, the immediate aftermath of the Civil War uh, into the early 20th century with segregation and, you know, civil rights, redlining, Jim Crow, all of those things. Th those would, to me, th those would represent the macro scale. Uh, forms of racism, things like the KKK, those groups that were uh, not only uh, in the public eye, but had influence, right, within the, the groups and the areas, the, the regions that they operated in. Um, and there is a little bit of a disconnect in, in the way that we talk about it, because here we are, you know, 21st century, 2021, and uh, the laws that were on the books even 50 years ago, those laws have been repealed, those laws have been taken away, right? But that's not to say that racism has gone anywhere, right? We can't legislate, right, holiness. And so because we can't legislate holiness, there has to be this awareness, especially among God's people, that just because the law says this isn't, isn't a reality the way it was doesn't mean that it's not a reality the way it was, right? It just evolved. Yeah. You mentioned that word evolved, that it definitely does that. And so I, I see it as more a, a micro issue, uh, maybe in, in some spaces where we're dealing with intentions of the heart and the words and the interactions and the behaviors and the, the stereotypes, right? Th those things are a little bit harder to quantify because frankly, we, we are our best justifiers. <laughs> and so when things rise up in our own heads and in our own hearts, the, the natural tendency of our flesh is not to say, this is wrong, this is immoral, this is against God's design or, or what God intends, our natural fleshly desire is to say, well, it's not as bad as it 
used to be, or maybe it's not bad at all. We just sort of dismiss the idea outright. And so I think we have to be uh, mindful of the fact that even if racism has evolved from more a macro to a, a, a micro scale, um, it still exists, right? Just because we don't see it in full view or in plain sight as often as we did, doesn't mean that it's not lurking behind some corners and behind some bushes. And so to yeah. deny to deny that reality is ultimately to set not just us, but set our brothers and sisters up for repeated heartache, tragedy, violence, all the things that we we sometimes do see uh, at the extreme level. You know, um, I think, you know, the idea of racism is, is probably a twofold definition. I think if, if we understand it as, you know, the, the, the systems in place that that would oppress or subvert or subject another people group underneath or situate one people group over another. But I think on a, on a personal level, it also deals with that micro side, you know? And so we, we have to look at both uh, with equal rigor. We have to address both with equal like passion and um, really, really go head, head first into it. Because at the end of the day, racism is, you know, I, I hear, I hear preachers at times and I, you know, to by and large, we're all preachers to, to different, you know, in different ways, to different extents. I hear the, the constant idea of, well, racism is just partiality. Well, that's true in the most basic, general, <laughs> generic sense of the idea. But racism is the most ex one of the most extreme forms of, of partiality. It's one of the most destructive, right, societally and personally. It does a lot of damage and it leads a lot of tragedy in its wake. And so um, I think that we can't just look at the the macro. We have to be willing to cons to consider the micro and look at the personal side of of the discussion. Um, and that and I think you're right, Joash. I think to sit down with brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to their stories, it puts us in a space where we we redevelop empathy for them. Right? We're not we're not judge and jury over someone else's lived experience. And where I'm an expert in mine, you're an expert in yours. There's there is in the Venn diagram of our lives, there is some overlap between those things. But I think we need to be willing to sit together to find what that commonality is, where that common ground is, so that we can work from a place of unity, not disunity. Does that, that make sense? That's good. That's I, I think, and I, I think that that evolution focus of it is important because the, the way that I think about this a lot is, so 200 years ago, there was slavery, right? And so the door for that to be an opportunity for sin closed. But just because the door, that specific door closed, doesn't mean there's not endless doors for it to work itself out. So it, so slavery ends, right? So what happens next? Well, we have segregation. Just because slavery ended doesn't mean the heart issue had changed and that ended. Segregation ends. What happens next? Redlining. Right. And like you, you see all of these all of these issues, you see these doors close, but you don't see the heart issue change. And the heart is just finding new ways to uh, get that sin out. And I, I think one way I was thinking about this earlier was with with Cain and Abel. You know, God comes to Cain after God accepts Abel's sacrifice, his sacrifice. Cain's upset and God says, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. And I think that's a way that that we ought to think about this is that the sin of racism is crouching at the door. Uh, and I think that's personal, but I also think it's generational where where this is something that's like you're taught 
you learn it from your culture, from your family, from, from somebody, you're not just born that way, right? Like you learn it. And, and that generational sin is crouching at the door. Um, we see with Cain's son, Lamech, he, he says in, in chapter four there, he has that moment where he's talking to his wives and he says, you know, I've, I've killed two men uh, like my father did, you know, and, and I think that's a helpful way to look at it is to say like, this is, this hasn't disappeared. It's crouching at the door. And if we don't, if we're not prepared for it, it's going to take hold in our heart and, and we're going to live it out, you know? Good stuff, man. I'm, I'm not even sure that the generational side of it was ever really registered in my, and I'm sure it has, but not in, not in the sense that you just, you just talked about it. Um, and I think I'm, I'm familiar with that concept in a, in a counseling setting where we see repeated patterns, right? This patterns of dysfunction that reoccur from, you know, not just the individual in the room, but you trace it back to parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And it's like this, this tree, right, of dysfunction. I think you're right, man. I think there's some, some generational qualities to it, which is. That's deep. Just, yeah, it takes you, it takes you a little bit deeper in a, in, in a different way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oof, all right. Yeah. Jumped in two feet, man, head first. <laughs> all right. So, so following, following up that question, uh, I have a, a bit of a personal question for you guys, if you're comfortable with it, because I think it would, it's, it's just a helpful example for people to see how this can still be an issue um, to, to follow up with what I just asked you. But would, would each of you uh, mind sharing a time, an example, some one that you're comfortable with where, where you had a negative experience uh, with another believer? Uh, that's that's something specific because that shows us that it, it can be in the church too. A negative experience with a, another believer that you, you interpreted and felt confident that it was racially motivated? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I'm trying to be sensitive in how I answer this so as to not out the person, um, yeah. but uh, at the same time also be graceful mm -hmm. towards them the way Christ was graceful towards me and patient towards me because I've had my own journey of awareness around this. Um, but, you know, I think uh, to your point, Trevor, uh, you coming coming to the U.S. as an immigrant from India, mm. I was very close-minded to the racism experienced by my black brothers and sisters, or even the reality of racism in the United States. Um, so, you know, I worked in Republican politics, very much bought into the American dream of, hey, if I do, uh, if I if I earn all the right degrees and if I work really hard, get the right resume. Uh, sky's the limit for me uh, to serve, even in the ministry world. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I had a couple of situations where, you know, I was up for uh, more responsibility um, in a ministry setting. Um, and uh, the person uh, who was considering my qualifications uh, was also a believer who also cares a lot about biblical justice. Um, but you know, uh, I was up for multiple, um, almost promotions uh, and, you know, being entrusted with more responsibilities with this person and was turned down every single time uh, for about four times in a row. Um, and uh, I was, every single time I lost out to um, a white man who was less qualified, um, didn't have a master's degree, 
um, you know, just, uh, yeah, just had less experience uh, doing the job, that kind of thing. And, you know, initially I wanted to make it everything and anything except race. Uh, so right. I tried to come up with every kind of solution. Think, no, nah, I probably didn't do well in the interview. I did, it was probably this, it was probably that. Uh, but as I unpack that in counseling and therapy more, I realized that, no, this is the only explanation left, um, the race thing. Uh, the fact that um, the, the, the person that was making this decision uh, is a white brother in Christ. And at the end of the day, he probably felt more comfortable with um, someone who was from a sim similar cultural background, you know, and right. we all have our implicit biases and who we want to work with and who we feel more connections to. And, you know, we tend to be attracted to people uh, who we see in ourselves. Um, so, uh, so, so that was part of it. Uh, and then, you know, George Floyd happened uh, mm -hmm. and there was this national racial reckoning. Uh, and then one day I'm in a meeting with this person uh, where it's a group meeting, a team meeting, and this person acknowledges to everyone in the room that, hey, you know what? I've had to do a lot of soul searching in this season and the Lord's shown me that I have serious issues when it comes to implicit biases and I need to repent of that. Uh, and I know for a fact that it's also affected uh, my decisions in hiring and promoting and elevating uh, leaders of color. Uh, so he didn't quite, you know, look at me and say, hey, this is what I did to you. But even hearing him say that was just a huge source of vindication for me and feeling like, wow, okay. Uh, I mean, first off, this is encouraging because, you know, there's a vindication that I wasn't uh, off in my original assumption. But then secondly, uh, it's also still hurtful. It hurts even more to realize that here's a brother in Christ who cares as deeply about the Lord as I do, who cares about biblical justice as I do, and uh, still had his own blind spots where, um, you know, he just didn't see um, the need to elevate perspectives that were different from his, you know, mm -hmm. so he wanted the diversity of, uh, you know, people in the room who uh, could offer a presence that was different from his, but ultimately at the end of the day, he didn't want that perspective of a brother in Christ uh, from a different racial background. And yeah. uh, so that's that's one example of something I've experienced in a Christian ministry space with a brother who claims to care about biblical justice too. Yeah, that's uh, thanks for sharing, man. And something interesting that I noticed and I feel is probably the case often is it it sounds like you're you're, you're having this, you know, this person as a faithful brother in Christ, and it seems he's completely unaware um, of what's going on in his heart. And that like, that's why these conversations are so important uh, yeah. is, is because it, it brings light to it. Um, so I appreciate you sharing. What about you, Will? Yeah, so <clears throat> uh, similar, similar situation, slightly different, I guess. Um, you know, I, I, it sounds strange to say it, it almost feels like it's, it's, self-congratulating in a sense, but, you know, I, I have three master's degrees, right? I have 10, 10 years of plus years of counseling experience as many years, you know, in, in vocational ministry. And um, no, I'm really and, not the smartest in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, it's just, it's just paper in a, in a frame on the wall, right? That's what it is. But, you know, I, there have been multiple times over the years where, um, I've had folks that that will say things like, you know, it's it's really nice that the church hired you, someone like you. Um, you know, you're so different than what I, you know, 
how I, how I understand Hispanics to be that kind of thing. And it's like, well, you know, and I'm sitting there at my desk with all my, my credentials around me, you know, not, not as a discussion point, but you know, there's, I've gone through the ringer multiple times <laughs> to be able to, to have, you know, a, a career in those kinds of things. And um, for someone to reduce my giftedness, to reduce my, uh, how the Lord has matured me in different ways, how the Lord is using me in different ways, to reduce that down to, um, you know, it's nice that you're a brown guy in, you know, the context that you're in. To me, that that's, that's some of the worst, most flagrant kind of stuff that, that we can put up with, right? And so I haven't experienced it on, on a violent side um, in, in anything like that, but it's usually the, the, the side conversations or the, you know, maybe a, a form of microaggression where it's, it's a, pl- a passing glance, right? Um, I see it on Facebook, on social media, and, and there are some really dark corners of social media. I think we all know that. Um, there are little crevices of light for sure. Um, but in, the, in some of the darker places of social media, I, I see folks that I know that I serve with and alongside over the years that will post things like, uh, you know, you're in America. So in America, we speak this language and in America, we do these things. And, you know, you're not in your country. And if you don't like America, go back to your country. And I'm thinking, but is that the essence one of what it means to be American? And two, even more importantly than that, is that the essence of what it means to be a Christian? Like, you know, what, what message are we sending here? Um, And some people would say, well, you know, I just, I believe in you know, being patriotic. And to to me, I'm looking at it as that's not patriotism. That's, there's, there's some not so latent racism, stereotyping, right? Discrimination that's going on here. Um, And those things are the seedbed for much worse things to come later down the line, right? And so, you know, every now and again, my wife and I, we, we take these, these very short sabbaticals from social media, because it it can be, it can be a, a, a land, a field of, of landmines for our heart, because I sometimes you just don't know what you're going to find, what you're going to come across, and you don't know how it's going to set you back or trigger you, you know. Um, in those conversations, I've learned and I'm still learning um, that I can stand up for myself in a way that's Christ-like, that still honors and loves my, my brother or sister, mm-hmm. right, whoever I'm having the conversation with, while not crossing the line into uh, unrighteousness. I have this natural apprehension. I, I hear guys, you know, folks talk about it all the time, you know, righteous anger. I know my own heart and not, not fully, but I know my own heart to the degree that I do right now. And I got to tell you, it's, it's when I'm angry, it's very rarely righteous anger. There's always some sort of vindication or, or vengeance that's, that's in there. Right. Mm. And so for me, I'm learning, the Lord is working on me in different ways through conversations, through sit downs through very sort of, you know, even sometimes just playing hands off. I'm just not, I'm not going to respond so that I can uphold and honor a fellow image bearer who by and large may be acting out of some measure of ignorance, right? We, we assume the worst sometimes it's just, they, they just don't know. And it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing. Um, sanctification is not fun at times. <laughs> and it requires us to constantly be walking according to the spirit, right? Setting our mind on things above so that here earth side, we can do the, the most good for ourselves, for the person that we're engaging with, the group that we're around, the people we're ministering to. Um, and sometimes that's, that's a deep investment 
where it feels like there's very little return, mm. you know? And so that's my thought, man. <laughs> that's, I mean, that, no, it's tough. And hearing both of y'all's examples there, it, it made me think of Jesus and how he himself dealt with this in certain ways. And the one that comes to my mind is, oh, something good can come from Nazareth. You know, that sort of little jab there, like that's, that's something he himself experienced. And, and I'll, I'll share something too, from the, from the guilty side of this. Um, and I, I've shared this example uh, with, with Will before, but my, my wife's from Canada um, and uh, she's, she's in Ontario, right outside of Toronto. And I mean, it's, I don't know if, if you've been there, Joe Ash, um, or have you, Will, have you been there? You haven't? So, so where she's at, I mean, it's just the, the, it's just different, completely different than, than where I am here. It's big city. Uh, it's very uh, multi-ethnic. I mean, if, if you're white and you're there in the city, you're, you're the minority when, you know, looking around. Um, and so we, I remember we went to the mall, this was before we got married and, uh, there's a very heavy Indian population and a heavy Muslim pop population there. And I remember seeing um, this heavy Muslim population. I remember seeing turbans. I remember seeing head coverings on women and uh, having this moment where I felt nervous because of it. And I was making these assessments about who they were because of what I had grown up hearing in my culture here in the South about Muslims all my life, specifically because of 9-11, right? And I, I had like the, what I was feeling was real and looking back, I'm not sure if like, if one of them had come to me in need of something, I'm not sure that I would have met that need in the same way that I would have if it was someone who looked like me. And, and so I've, I've, I had to repent of that and, and recognize like, this is, this is a problem in my heart. Like I'm not unaffected by this. Like the, the culture that I grew up in taught me for years that if you're Muslim, you want to kill white people, you know, like that's, that's heavy stuff, a heavy message that from like, I was seven years old when 9-11 happened. So you're taking a seven-year-old and, and hearing this all your life. Uh, and I, I share that example just to, to, for anyone listening to say like, don't be so prideful to think that you're not unaffected by this because like the reality is you are like, you're, you are thrown into this culture where it's real and it's, it's put on you. Um, and uh, it's, it takes humility to be able to, to see this stuff. Another one is, you know, I, I grew up being told that it was like scripture that God did not approve of interracial marriage. And so for a long time in my youth, like I, I thought that that was a problem, you know, and it, it wasn't until I actually opened scripture for myself and read it and learned like, hold up a second this isn't anywhere in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's heavy stuff and it's heavy stuff that, that affects you when you're taught it, you know, and we have to be humble and recognize when, when we're guilty of it. And that's important. That's really good, Trevor. And uh, wow. I mean, this is the honest conversations podcast. So <laughs> I really appreciate your honesty there and just pouring it hard on sharing that. And, you know, this in the spirit of, uh, that same honesty, you know, so for me coming as an immigrant at 18 to the United States, uh, I've been conditioned in Indian upper middle class society to look at black people as dangerous uh, yeah. and people who, uh, you know, uh, some of the stereotypes I was thought 
taught were that, you know, you can't trust black people. And uh, when I was leaving India for the US, my grandma pulled me and my sister aside and told us, hey, don't be friends with black people because you can mm -hmm. never trust them. And, you know, so just that kind of stuff that's ingrained in you. And my grandma is one of the most solid believers that I know, you know, so yeah. again, it's, uh, uh, this uh, cognitive dissonance, but, um, but you know, uh, coming to the U.S., um, I, I personally um, embrace the mindset of white is right, and so I started assimilating more into white spaces. I wanted to be more like my white friends than my black friends. Mm -hmm. uh, started listening more to white theologians and having my, sh my faith shaped more uh, by a white Western perspective, despite maybe a, being a brown man and a person of color. Uh, and then it's only recently that I've started reading authors like James Cone, uh, Martin Luther King, and, you know, I may not always agree on everything with them, but, you know, I don't always agree with everything that Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards said or did too, as slave yeah. holders, right? So, uh, yeah, it's all about nuancing. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that kind of honesty and we, need, we absolutely need more of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right, man. I think... Uh... It's tough, you know, I grew up in, in, in New York City, which is, a, a, you know, we recognize it as sort of the melting pot, right, of, of the U.S., and it is by and large, but I can, I can distinctly remember growing up, you know, in the area of Brooklyn that I grew up in, our, our house was between 5th and 6th Avenue, between 2nd and 6th Avenue, so those four or five avenues consecutively, uh, that was primarily the Hispanic section, and that wasn't limited to one one, right, my family's Puerto Rican, so we were around Mexicans and Guatemalans and, you know, Dominicans, and, and so we had this, this melting pot, even within the melting pot, um, and even within that, where we, we spoke similar language, we had maybe some unique cultural differences, but by and large, there was a lot more that we had in common than not. Um, even within those conversations, the, the distrust between Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, and, you know, you don't, you know, you don't do this with, you don't talk about with this with them because we don't trust, you know, th that's sort of that breeding ground for that. But then you go beyond our little corner of the neighborhood and, uh, you know, 7th Avenue, 6th and 7th Avenue were, uh, you know, Muslim, right? Middle Eastern, a variety of, you know, we had Persians, we had, uh, we had friends that were from Bangladesh, we had uh, Pakistani friends, right? We had Saudi Arabian friends. And so, um, but they were situated along that, that, Avenue. Eighth Avenue was primarily Asian, Eastern Asian, right? So Japanese, Korean, Chinese, uh, Vietnamese, Filipino. And so you'd go down from there. And so each avenue had this unique sort of split to it. And within that, there were unique biases and stereotypes that governed the way you interacted and did business with, the friendships you had, the, you know, I was allowed to go in some friends' homes, but not others. Um, and so it, it it's fascinating to, to hear you say, Trevor, that, you know, going back to that generational idea that, you know, these are some of these things we're taught where we just sort of grow up in it, right? And we don't really give consideration to it at eight years old. We're not thinking deeply about this stuff. We just know mom and dad say we can't go hang out with so-and-so or, in, you know, so-and-so's house. But looking back on it now, you know, I'm going to be 37. Now I, I, I see it and I'm, I'm thinking, man, there was some really not good stuff here, right? Yeah. And some of that is, there's ignorance in some of that. And some of that is 
there's complicity in it, right? And so being able to sift out and, and, and nuance some of that is, is super important, even as a pastor, you know, now going on 10 plus years, I had to look at my bookshelf. If you look at my bookshelf, you know, a year ago, it's very different than it is now, mm. right? The perspectives, the, the priorities, the, the doctrinal convictions, you know, we, we tend to sort of collect with others that sound and act and think and, you know, are like us. Um, and I remember as a, as a young pastor anchoring myself to, you know, the D.A. Carsons of the world and the John Pipers of the world. And I'm not, I'm not disparaging them and their work at all, right? I still have, there's still a ton of useful resources that I have written by guys like that. Um, but if you were to, were to ask me, you know, what African-American, you know, theologians are you reading? What Hispanic theologians are you reading? I probably not only would have told you none, but I might have even told you, you know, we need to be careful because of some maybe some theological, you know, they're a little bit more theologically liberal than, right? And that's that was not an informed, that wouldn't have been an informed sort of idea. It just, that's just the echo chamber that I grew up in, in ministry, right? And this is me as an adult. And so I think you're right to, to really sit down and think through the, the biases that, that exist in our own hearts and the ways that they come out it does take, it takes purpose and intentionality behind that. And then an honesty to, to, to admit it in all its awful glory, right? Because there's no way we can confess if we're not in agreement that what we're confessing is awful. Right. right? And yeah. so, so, yeah, man, I, I, it is honest conversation. So <laughs> yeah. we're well within the bounds of the discussion, but there's some real, there's some real stuff in, in, in these things, you yeah. know? So. And it, it, you, you get to a point, you know, where it's you look at yourself as a kid or, or at children who are taught this and you just feel sorry for them because, like you said, you, you're not they're not thinking deep about it. They don't know. But there comes a point when you're not a kid anymore. And, and there's some real responsibility that, you know, we have to take on ourselves and we don't get to stand before God and go, well, you know, my mom told me this growing up. So that's why I mistreated this person. Because that's that's just not going to cut it. Like like a point comes when you're responsible for what Scripture calls you to, uh, whether you were taught something different or not. And so that's that's why this is so important. Uh, you know, we don't get the we can't shift the blame. Uh, the the hard issue is is your own hard issue if it's there. Good stuff, man. All right, so. Uh, we'll keep it rolling here. So uh, a, another uh, question for you guys and kind of your own journey and, and what shape do you hear specifically relating to Christ? Um, how has reading and studying the life and ministry of Jesus uh, helped shape your passion uh, to stand against racism? Like what, what in the Gospels sticks out to you uh, specifically from his life and ministry? Yeah, that's really good, Trevor. And I think your question really goes back to pointing us to the sufficiency of Scripture, right? Yeah. We talk a lot in conservative evangelical circles of the sufficiency of Scripture. But yet, when it comes to issues like racism, uh, we start to say things like, oh, yeah, Scripture is nothing to say about this. Or we act like Scripture is nothing to say or do with the issue of racism because, you know, those are different times and right. slavery was around then. And we kind of make excuses. But you know, as someone who believes in the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture, uh, I look at so much wisdom that's available from the life of Jesus to pull from. So one thing that's uh, really stood out to me these past few months is 
uh, reading through the book of James, the gospel of James. Uh, nice. Uh, I meant to say Gospel of Luke, uh, <laughs> uh, Gospel of Luke, but also the Book of James, right? Yeah. Uh, Book of James is uh, very much uh, a practical application of the life of Jesus Christ. But right. uh, the Gospel of Luke talks so much about Jesus's heart for the marginalized, um, for the Samaritans, the Samaritan women, and, and all the kind of social boundaries that he broke just to move towards the oppressed and the marginalized in his society. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we uh, make so much of Christ's death and resurrection as we absolutely should, uh, but we kind of neglect the way Jesus lived his life and conducted yeah. himself and uh, the people he selected and, uh, you know, just, uh, yeah, the way he uh, displayed and manifested the Father's love to people who are on the margins of society. So. I personally believe as someone who mobilizes the church to care for people and seek justice for people in the margins of society, I believe that, you know, we, uh, we do this, we, we care for the marginalized because Jesus cared for us while we were on the margins of his kingdom, right? And that's what the gospel is about at the end of the day. Right. That's good, man. Thank you for sharing. I love it. You, Will? Oh man, so so I I have my my notes and I can't quite read them because I don't know what I was doing, um, but I think here for me I think it's important for us to uh, to remember just in a general sense that the ministry of Christ is not limited to uh, the gospels themselves, right? Um, in fact, the New Testament really expands on the idea of the the fact that Christ is eternal, right? And long before the foundations of the earth, there was a, 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 he existed within the Godhead, right? Second person of the Trinity. And when we look at portions of scripture, like, let's say Colossians 1, 13 through 20, when we see uh, John's introduction in John 1, 1 through 5, right? The beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. That, that ministry existed long before the incarnation, right? And why, and, and to me, I think that's important because when we, when we, look at the ministry of Christ, and when we, we limit it to just the gospel narratives, I think we lose sight of the fact that Christ was intimately involved in creation, both at the beginning of time, but then also very personally, right? Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, right? I formed your inward parts. Those, those activities, that forming is not uh, apart from the work and ministry of who Jesus is, right? Colossians 1 would tell us we were created by him and through him, and in him all things hold together. So, I, so I think looking at it in terms of a, a, a maybe a, a biblical theology, a, an overview of what the scriptures would show us regarding uh, the ministry of Christ, apart from his incarnation, I think is, is super important because that's where we we begin to understand the imago dei, what it means to be created in his image, why yeah. the why that's significant for us. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really do believe that where we sometimes wrongly, especially, you know, within conservative evangelical circles, especially we wrongly reduce, uh, you know, gospel proclamation to just the message. I think what the scriptures remind us is that the gospel message is incarnational, that there's a, a very real verbal proclamation, but there's also a very real lived experience within where those two things come together. And it's, it's a powerful testimony to the world around us, right? I mean, yeah. it's one thing, you know, you look at the Good Samaritan, 
the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I realize it's, you know, it's a, a bit of a fictional story in that sense, but I think the, the truths it proclaims speak very loudly to, to the issues even that we deal with now, to where we don't actually see the, the Samaritan saying much of anything <laughs> to the guy in need, but we do see him through the testimony of his life we do see him binding up wounds. We do see him tending to the needs. We do see him sacrificing his resources. We do see not just this immediate care, but we see this ongoing care to where with the innkeeper, he says, look, here's, here's enough for X amount of time. And if there's more, I will be back, right? There's a, there's a brother's keeper sense uh, quality to the, to the parable. And so I see that and I, I, I see that as, as foundational, to how we as God's people engage with the world around us, where there are times where our words won't carry as, as much weight as our lives will, right? And where preaching and pulpits and platforms have their place within local congregations, they don't necessarily carry that, that same weight in the world around us. And so there's got to be a both end, not an either or. So for me, I, I see it as let's, let's talk about the ministry of Christ, the life of the, the person and work of Jesus eternally speaking, not just incarnationally. Um, I think that has to give us some, some measure because what we see is he was influential, right, in foundational and creation uh, at the beginning of the world. And we see that tribes and nations and tongues will worship at the end of the world, right? That there's going to be this consummation of all things where Jesus is worshiped and lauded and esteemed and glorified uh, through all the tribes and all the peoples and all the cultures and all the ethnos of the world around them. And there's something magnificent in that and beautiful, right? So that, yeah. that means that for us as, as God's people, the answer is not colorblindness. The answer is not, well, I don't see color. No, it's beholding the majesty of who Christ is and what Christ has done in forming each individual person with all the complexity and all the nuance and all of the, the, the creativity that is wrapped up in one single human being. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it really goes well with what you were saying too, Joe Ash about obviously our faith is completely hinged upon the resurrection of Christ, mm -hmm. but it's not like he came on one day and died on that same day. Right. <laughs> You've got all of these these years, really. I mean, it's what we know of that that three year ministry. Um, but who knows what was before that? But this this perfect life, um, living out the will of God, uh, where where He's giving us that example. And to what you were saying, Will, about Christ being a part of creating us as individuals and that image of God. You see that exactly how Jesus treats people. It's like he's looking at these people, understanding like I, my hand was involved in creating you. My hand was involved in, in giving you my image. And there was no one that, that Jesus was not willing uh, to interact with. Like you've got men coming to him with leprosy, this disease that everyone would have like ran away from. And Jesus embraces them. You've got people possessed by demons you know, everyone would flee from that situation and Jesus embraces them. Like it, it didn't matter who they were, the Samaritan woman, you know, at the well, like uh, clear racial issues there between Jews and Samaritans. And Jesus just sort of bridges that gap and says, I have living water for you. Uh, you, you see that, that constant love that he has because of the image of God that he himself has given them. 
So that's I, I hadn't thought about that. Like you said, that with with him being involved in it, that's good. I like it. Trevor, yo, do you mind if if we jump to the sixth question? Is that is that cool? Yeah, because I feel like with with the with the yeah, yeah. next two questions, we've been sort of diving into a little bit of those things as we've gone, um, and I don't want to overrun our time. Um, but I think that last question that that we have is 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 going to be a good discussion point for us because it's the practical side of of uh, of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Let's do it. All, All right. right. So, so what practical steps can a congregation take to make sure uh, that racism is something that is not tolerated in the church? Yeah, um, you know, I would say. No church or Christian organization wakes up one morning thinking we're going to do something racist, right? right. This is, <laughs> I mean, uh, with the with the shootings that happened in Atlanta, uh, you know, against the Asian Asian American community just a few weeks ago, um, you know, the, the church put out a statement saying we're confused. Uh, this guy was a member in our church, but we never taught him racism. Right. Um, but yet somehow this member of their church felt like he had the permission to, uh, you know, act on uh, potentially uh, racially targeting instincts and that kind of thing, right? So no, no church, uh, I don't think any church or most churches, um, vast majority of churches really preach racism from the pulpit. Uh, but I think a lot of us allow racism and we do it in a bunch of different ways. So. Uh, one way that the church allows racism uh, that I've been thinking of lately is uh, just the lack of representation that we see in uh, elder boards and uh, pastor boards, you know, at, at different churches. Uh, and I myself have had conversations, multiple conversations with uh, church planters and church revitalizers uh, in these past few months who wanted me on their launch team um, and, uh, you know, who say they want a multi-ethnic church, but, you know, uh, for them, they also say things like, well, you know, we're not going to bring it up at the get-go. We're, we're not going to talk about multi-ethnicity uh, for maybe a year or two after we launch, because we don't want there to be any division from the beginning. Uh, and, you know, as a person of color, what I hear in those conversations is, oh, so you want my presence, but you don't want my perspectives. Uh, by not having diverse voices on your leadership team. Yeah. Uh, you know, you want to have people of color leading worship uh, from stage on a Sunday morning to make your church look good for the optics of being a diverse multi-ethnic church. But who's speaking into your leadership strategy? Who's speaking into your growth strategy as a church? And if you're not going to ingrain this stuff into the DNA of your church um, from the very get-go, you can't just wake up one morning and expect everyone uh, to care about racial justice when something like George Floyd happens all over again. And, you know, uh, as we talked about earlier, racism's not going away anytime soon. Uh, and conversations about racism aren't going away anytime soon either. So I think churches uh, should take the step of uh, being very proactive about this versus being reactive on this. And, uh, you know, one, one example of this I'll give is uh, I have a friend of mine, really dear brother who I'm discipling in the word right now. Uh, and he 
Almost Leftist Church, which is a really large mega church in the Atlanta area, not going to name it, a really famous pastor or preacher. But in all of this uh, preacher's years from the pulpit at this church, he'd never once preached about racial injustice and police brutality and things of that nature. Uh, and so this white brother um, heard his pastor right after George Floyd talk about racism for the first time from the pulpit. And this brother almost left the church because he felt like the pastor wasn't preaching the gospel. Um, now, I don't blame this brother. I wish he arrived at a different conclusion, but I really don't blame him because this is the first time he's hearing his pastor preach, and he's been going to this church for like a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so obviously he's going to uh, be surprised by this kind of reactive stance and think it's very disingenuous and it's there to please the media and that it's not the gospel, you know. Um, so, so I think it really uh, behooves all of us as pastors, ministry leaders, to be very intentional in the culture that we're shaping and forming and uh, not just looking at this as, uh, oh yeah, we'll, we'll deal with this down the road when we have the people and when services are going strong for a year. No, like what are we doing about this now uh, would kind of be my pushback. So, so yeah, so I think uh, treating it with urgency uh, and also being very specific and how we're tackling with this and uh, having representation on your pastor elder board uh, and your deacon board allows you to do that because then you have voices from those communities that are shaping that strategy. That's good, man. Oh, (laughs) this is the, uh, I knew the question was coming. And it's tough on on the one end because I sort of see it as a little bit of a spectrum of sorts to say, um, there's a there's a bare minimum that should be done, but if the bare minimum is only done, I, I'm not sure that that really accomplishes anything. Um, so I think bare minimum would be uh, pastors, preachers uh, denouncing racism from their pulpits. Mm-hmm. Um, it's obviously anti-gospel, and I, I I know we've implied it, but I think it's important to just say it explicitly that racism in every form is anti-gospel. It's anti-Christ, right? It's anti-Christian. It, it, there, there's nothing in, within the value system of racism, racist thought, racist belief that is congruent or compatible with the gospel of Christ, right? Which means that for God's people, the same way that we might uh, seek to expel, let's say, you know, sexual sin issues, right, and deal with those things head on, likewise, we should deal with issues of race and biases and, and stereotypes and discrimination, we should deal with those things head on as well. I realize there, one for whatever reason seems to be more sensitive than another. I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is. Um, so to me, the, the bare minimum is, as we preach, as we, as we engage with cultural issues, like let's say the shooting in Atlanta, like now here, the, the most recent shooting yesterday in Minnesota again, mm. um, I think as those things start to occur. And as they become in, as they get into the public eye, I think we do have a responsibility to say, Hey, by the way, (laughs) any form of racism is right. Opposed to the scriptures. And so we, we resist those things. We denounce those things. Um, But I think if we end there, I think we run the risk of, of just sort of patting ourselves on the back and saying, see, we care about racial justice and we care about, you know, without actually taking any steps forward, you know, and so I think, too, it, it becomes an issue where uh, that, ha- that preaching has to be a recurring theme, particularly as you get to portions of scripture that deal with things like 
let's say the parable of the Good Samaritan, or if you're going to preach through Jonah, or you're going to preach through uh, a psalm, Psalm 117, right? Where you're going to talk about John 3:16, or you, whatever idea, however we're going to expand on it, it's it's there often enough. The idea of anthropology is there in so many different passages of scripture that it becomes a legitimate entryway to have the discussion with your people, right? And so repetition we know takes it not only takes time, but it, it over the course of repeating something, it starts to stick in people's minds, right? Yeah. Stick in their hearts. And so I think repetition's key there. I think too. Uh, churches really need to consider um, those things that they prioritize most, right? And, you, you know, conservative evangelical circles, we tend to be a little bit more politically leaning on things. It, you know, it's just sort of how we roll. Yeah. Um, and by default, oftentimes those, those political leanings stand against the idea of any sort of justice, right? It becomes a preach the gospel mantra without any, you know, transformed life behind it. Um, I think it, it, it requires church committees. It requires church leadership, elders, staff, right? Whatever the, the you know, church polity structure is to to really sit down and analyze, okay, the things that we're, that we prioritize, the things we talk about, the things we give money to the organizations that we align ourselves with, are they, are they advancing the gospel, the kingdom, or are they advancing the agenda of the local church, which those two things are not inherently the same. Right. Yeah. And so I realize those are, those are difficult conversations because there may be some reorienting and, and, and adjustments that need to be made. But, you know, when we talk about the church, ref, you know, reformed, always reforming, I don't think that idea means that, well, we did it this way in this season and we do it this way in the next. I think it really becomes an issue where we look at what, who we are, what we're gifted in as, as a people in a local congregation, and we make the necessary adjustments to reform so that we're seeking to promote the kingdom in the things that we do, the things we say, the ministries we participate in, the organizations we align ourselves with, the money that we spend, the resources that we expend. And so... I think, you know, again, that spectrum is, is wide, but I do think there are some basic steps that, that churches can do. Um, but at first, you, you know, you, you got to, it sort of goes back to the, the heart. What do we care about? What is the heart of God for those in need, right? Widows, orphans, least of these, those on the fringes of society, the marginalized, the oppressed. How do we understand God's heart for them? And then how do we engage with God's heart in a very practical sense, right? theology and practice coming together uh, in this way that becomes usable, useful for the world around us. Um, I think personally that I'm not a, a, a doomsayer by any, any stretch, but I think by and large, particularly within conservative evangelical spaces, we are pretty, we're years behind in that conversation mm. because we've aligned our theology to the political, to the voting booth and not to the yeah. throne. And those yeah. two things, it, it's going to require a massive shift in identity so that we can move away from one and, and towards another. So it's good, man. I like it. I think that, uh, I mean, the, the, you talking about preaching it from the pulpit made me think of Romans 10. Uh, how will they hear if, if someone doesn't tell them? You know, like there, there's people guilty of this that don't know. Uh, and they like they're living it out every day and they they need to hear it um and just a, a personal example 
related to this that I, I think is helpful is if, you know, if you have an opportunity to engage someone and have a relationship with someone who looks different than you, like take that opportunity uh, because that's going to be helpful. I, I, I didn't realize this at the time, but looking back at it, I think one of the most helpful things that shaped me personally um, within this conversation was uh, the friend group that I had in college. Uh, Will, we've talked about this, you remember it, but there was a, a four of us. Um, one of them, she was uh, half Spanish, half white. She grew up in Brazil. Another one was uh, half Puerto Rican, half white. She grew up in the Middle East. Um, and then one of my close friends, he was black. And so looking back, you can see that in that friend group, I, I was the minority there. Uh, but being able to have conversations with them um, and just hear stories about their life, how they grew up, what their thoughts were, like really thoughts and opinions that were far different than what I grew up with. Uh, and, and being able to have those relationships, it's really important, especially in the church, uh, to be welcoming to that uh, and, and, and to know like not everybody thinks like you. You know, not, not everyone uh, comes from the same circles that you do. Not everyone grew up in the same culture that you did. Uh, and, and that's, I mean, really by God's design, uh, when, when you look at the world, that ethnicity is, it's a beautiful thing. It's important. It goes back to what you were saying about, you know, people say, well, I don't, you know, I'm colorblind. I don't see color. And every time I hear that, I get the sentiment behind it, but I always just think like, you're lying. Like you do, like I'm sitting here, I'm talking with both of you and I can see that you're brown men, you know, and that's okay. Uh, and and it's, I think it's something to be celebrated. I think you see that from Paul himself, like this sort of, like he's, he's proud of his Jewish family. Uh, it's something that's in, important to him when you read kind of how he, how he talks about it in Romans and scripture. Um, and, and it's something that, that we need to welcome into our lives as these different backgrounds. I think, I think that's a big practical step that would be helpful too. It's good stuff, guys. Yeah. And we, uh, we went deep. I was gonna say we jumped sort of into deep end on, on these things, and and I think it, they're they're helpful conversations, right, to have. Um, and I do wish there's a, a huge part of me that wishes that we were having more of these conversations were existing, right? Um, and I'm sure they are. I'm not. I'm not saying that they're not happening, but I, it's it's not the kind of thing that you hear a whole lot about, right? Right. You sort of see folks setting themselves up in ivory towers, sort of shouting at each other you know, from a distance rather than sort of getting in the trench. So this was great. Thanks. Uh, yeah. For this conversation. Thanks for having me. And really uh, thank you both for creating the space to have difficult conversations like this, because uh, you know, without even saying it, you're encouraging other brothers and sisters across the church to replicate conversations like right. this right. and, you know, uh, hold charity for each other at the same time, even in disagreement. Um, so yeah, really grateful for you both and your ministry. I love it. I enjoyed it. All right, y'all.